you're listening to Family Pedals, the podcast for people questioning the status quo and living life a little bit differently. I'm your host, Sarah Copper. Today, I am welcoming Lindsay Bailey onto the show. She lives car-free with her family in Chicago and works for the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning. She shares how she came to be car-free, along with insights she's gained from her work about the impact of parking policies on livability and the best ways to get involved in your local community to support active transportation policies. Lindsay, I'm really excited to have you on the show. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. Because you not only live the active transportation lifestyle, you also have a career in the transportation field. So I feel like you're going to bring that dual perspective of what it's like as a user and what's happening at the bigger city and regional level to support all modes of transportation. Yeah, they do overlap and they probably motivate each other. Yes. Well, before we dive into the details of your job, can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in active transportation? Sure. I would say like a lot of people who I've met that have gotten really into biking, I spent a couple of years living abroad. I was in the Peace Corps in Guatemala, and Peace Corps gave me a pretty sweet mountain bike to use in my little village. And obviously, we didn't have cars as volunteers, and they had a great system of buses and microbuses. Then after my two years abroad, I moved back home. I bought a new car. I went to grad school in Southern California, where everyone drives. Mm -hmm. And I had a bike out there, and I used it around campus and at the grocery store, but definitely still use my car a lot. It wasn't really until I moved to D.C. and my first week living in the city, I ended up racking up like $300 in just a couple of parking tickets. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah. And I really wasn't using my car much, and it just made sense to sell it. So I was a recent graduate at my first job, and the idea of not needing to make a car payment or pay insurance or parking tickets or gas, I kind of felt like I'd stumbled upon this secret way to save a ton of money. Yes. And it helped that my roommate, who was also my best friend, had a car, and we could use her car when we needed to. And I just sort of came to realize that I didn't really like driving very much. And D.C. traffic is terrible. But I loved biking. So, How did you find it to be biking in a really urban area like D.C.? I, I did find it stressful. And this was before Gabe Klein came to D.C. So they didn't have a lot of infrastructure. And I felt like I was kind of out there on my own, like a road warrior. I had a blog that was just me posting video of riding in the what was then the bus and bike lane, and it was usually used by cars. So every day <laughs> I would just upload a video of how it was not functioning and how dangerous it was to ride. But I still enjoyed it, and it was a really short bike ride. I think it was like a mile and a half. And for listeners who may not know, who is Gabe Klein? Oh, Gabe Klein, he was... I'm not sure exactly what his role at, in Washington, D.C. was. I think he was a transportation commissioner out there. He came from this startup background in Zipcar and then got really into promoting bicycling in cities. And he eventually came to Chicago when I was living here and really upped the ante in bike infrastructure across the city. Just 
setting goals like 100 miles of protected and buffered bike lanes within the first year of Mayor Emanuel's administration and really put the spotlight on bicycling infrastructure. Great. And then can you tell a little bit about how you currently get around now and what the mix of transit, biking, walking, car share looks like for you? Sure. We have a cargo bike. I have a touring bike and a Dutch bike. And I started out with the Dutch bike. I mean, I started out with the touring bike until I got pregnant and found that it wasn't going to work being hunched over my handlebars like that. So at the time we had Divi Bike Share, which was another of Gabe Klein's projects. Mm -hmm. I was already a member. I just started riding Divi a lot and I realized I really enjoyed riding slowly and being upright. So that's when I bought the Dutch bike and I biked until I was about eight and a half months pregnant. But of course, I had to Google to find out if it was safe and make sure other women have done this. Yes. <laughs> and then it wasn't until our daughter was about a year and a half that we bought the cargo bike because you can't, well, I mean, maybe you can. We didn't feel comfortable having our daughter on a bike seat in the dead of Chicago winter. Mm -hmm. So we ended up buying a work cycles crate, the Bachfeet style bike. And that has a rain cover, which also works to keep heat in. And so we are able to ride year round. How did you find that transition to going from riding with just yourself to riding with kids? Did you find that to be pretty natural or were there a lot of a steep learning curve for that? Yeah, I mean, we had, you know, the early days when she was a newborn and we couldn't take her on a bike and just having a newborn in general is a lot of work and is very hard. Yes. <laughs> but when we were finally able to put her on a bike seat, we chose to go with the Yep Mini that went on our front handlebars. Yes, we used the same one. Yeah, we love that. We could sing to her while we're riding down the street mm -hmm. and point out things together and just really love being so close to her. And my husband had a seat on his rear rack. And I, I don't recommend putting a child seat on a fixed gear bike, but he did it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would not be my favorite either. <laughs> yeah, we, we I'd also we'd done some research and we'd read enough blogs about family biking to know that we didn't want to go the route of the trailer. I know a lot of people start there, mm -hmm. but we just skipped that and said they're cumbersome. And personally, I didn't like the idea of them being so low to the ground. I don't think that's a realistic fear. It was just my personal feeling. And we knew some people that had Bachfeet bikes. And I think that we're lucky to be in Chicago where you have a lot of people who bike with kids. So we were able to talk to them about the pros and cons of different bikes. Yes, it really helps to know somebody so you can bounce those ideas off of them because it can feel just hard to find the information or to be evaluating all these different claims about biking with kids if you aren't talking to somebody who's actually done it before. Yeah. And of course, you know, we do use the transit system, the buses and trains. We're lucky to live in an area. I mean, intentionally, we chose this area so that we could continue living without cars mm -hmm. because it had so many different transit options. And then we have commuter rail that goes really close to my parents' house that we can take. And we occasionally rent cars or, I don't know, we haven't taken an Uber or a Lyft in a long time. Maybe sometimes for work I will, mm -hmm. but we probably only rent cars quarterly. 
couple times a year. Let's transition into the work that you do as a planner. Can you tell us a little bit about your current job and the organization you work for and what you do there? Yeah, sure. I'm a senior planner at the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning. And that's a long name, so we just go by our acronym of CMAP. We are the regional planning agency for the seven counties around Chicago. That's a federally designated metropolitan planning organization. And we work mostly in transportation, and we allocate federal transportation dollars to major capital projects in the region. So that's like highways and transit. But we also do work with local communities that touches on everything from water quality to zoning to arts and culture planning. And I work on the local technical assistance side, which is great because I get to work in so many different topics. And right now I'm wrapping up a downtown master plan for the second largest city in Illinois. And I'm working on a couple of parking management plans. And my area of focus is in parking policy and active transportation. So walking, biking, and transit. And is that something that they hired you specifically to fill that role of active transportation and parking policies? Or is that more, those are your interests and then you've kind of molded it to shape those interests? Yeah, it's actually more the second where I came in as a general planner and I had gotten into parking years before and I had been car free at that point for a few years. And so I was getting more and more into biking and in my life without a car, did a lot of walking and taking transit. So it sort of naturally worked into that. Well, let's talk more about the parking, because I think that's something that it has this huge impact on the overall infrastructure, but it isn't the first thing that you think of when you think of how can we better support active transportation. You don't automatically think parking policies. (laughs) So can you tell us a little bit more about your study of that and what you found and kind of the insights you've gained? Yeah, I mean, you're totally right. I read Donald Shoup's book, The High Cost of Free Parking, when it came out. I think Mm. it was like 2005. And I was hooked. And once you get the parking bug, it's hard not to notice how it influences every aspect of life. We we could do an entire podcast on parking, but (laughs) I won't. I won't bore everyone with those details. But the really big challenge is that personal automobiles and dense cities are a combination that doesn't work well because of the physical geometry of streets and the space that we need for people and cars. And people are really what makes cities great. And the more we try to accommodate cars with parking areas and driving lanes, the more space we have to take away from people. So to give you an example, we We were living in a three-flat coach house for where we live now, and we were above another family, and there was a couple on the first floor, and that type of housing wouldn't be legal to build today because of parking requirements. So just the parking needed for our front house would have taken away our rear building, and our building sat on the space that would be required for just three parking spaces. 
So we had eight people and three dogs living in the area for three cars. And obviously you can, you can stack parking and put it in garages, but that gets super expensive. I, I have been using the number of $30,000 per space, but my consultant friends are saying that it's closer to 40000 in their estimates. Wow. Yeah, for each space you build, that cost gets bundled into the, the cost of everything that we buy because drivers usually aren't paying for the parking. Right. That's higher costs of housing, higher costs for things that we buy, and even in our allocation of tax dollars that pay for roads. Mm-hmm. So, of course, as people on bikes and using buses and transit, we are using the roads but oftentimes half of the road is dedicated to parking if you have one lane in either direction with parking on either side. So half of the money to build the road is supporting the storage of private vehicles. And that's usually free. Right. So beyond the cost of providing parking that we all bear, whether or not we have a car, the physical layout of communities changes when we have excessive parking. It'll keep your buildings spaced further apart And that makes walking and biking unpleasant and unsafe. It leads to the construction of wider roads, which can encourage speeding and make it the crossing distances longer for pedestrians. And then it also adds stormwater management problems because you have a reduction in the permeable surfaces. And you'll have a lot of people who will say, we have to provide parking because so many people need it. They depend on it. But we don't really know how much people actually need because we have distorted the market so much. We Mm -hmm. require parking be included when we build almost anything. And there are crazy laws that say things like, if you build a swimming pool, you need one space for every 2,500 gallons of water. And there's... There's no logical explanation for the relationship of gallons to water to people driving. <laughs> and if we if we stopped communities from requiring that parking, and that doesn't mean they can't build it. It just says developers aren't required to provide it and let them decide how much they think people would park. Mm-hmm. I think we'd see different outcomes. And then if we could separate the cost of parking from the cost of everything else so that drivers are just paying for what they need. I think people would make very different decisions about how they get around, especially for those short trips that are really easy to do on your bike or by walking. Right. And I find that to be one of the biggest benefits of being by bike is the parking situation. Is it so much easier to park if you're going downtown or going to a more dense area that All my friends are driving around looking for parking and trying to figure it out, whereas a bike, I can just pull right up. Exactly. And that's really helpful when you're biking around with kids. If you had to carry a car seat from along your parking spot all the way to where you're going, and Mm -hmm. if you can just roll right up to where you're going and get your kid out, it makes it a lot more convenient. Right. So let's come back to the policy part of it a little bit more. What I'm understanding is that a lot of places have these parking minimums, not just for things like swimming pools, but anytime a new building is built, there is some sort of code or regulation that's telling them how many parking spaces they have to provide. And my question is, what is the new policy that should be in place? Should there just not be any parking requirements? Or are some places experimenting with parking maximums? 
Yeah, there are definitely different options for communities to take, sort of depending on their context. And I generally support the idea of getting rid of minimums. And I could see where parking maximums could be useful, uh, but I kind of prefer the idea of letting people decide. It gets tricky if, because we are sort of embedded in a car culture, you will have developers building more parking that probably won't get used. Mm -hmm. But I, I feel like it'll be a, a quick turnaround where they realize they could save a lot of money by not building at all. Mm -hmm. I think for people to get sort of a better idea of what we're up against when it comes to parking, I would suggest people look into Donald Shoup. He's sort of known as the godfather of parking and you could read his 600-page book or you could <laughs> probably find some YouTube videos where he outlines three steps to reform parking and it is to get rid of the requirements and to charge the right price for parking. Mm -hmm. And he uses the Goldilocks principle where it's like you don't want it to be too high so that people are just abandoning the shopping areas or not coming and it's not too low so that all the spaces are full and typically what we find in congested cities is that the price is too low and it needs to go up a little bit to try to spread the demand out and then his third step is to return that meter revenue back to the neighborhood where it's collected I'd also recommend looking into work that Todd Littman has done at the Victoria Transport Policy Institute. And then at, in your local level, there's a lot that people can do. There, things like showing up for community meetings when there's a development proposal and show support for developments that don't have a lot of parking or policies that remove the requirements and the parking subsidies. We'd probably be called the Yimby crew, the yes in my backyard. <laughs> but also to talk to business owners about biking. If you're at a store and you're buying something, you could talk about how great it is that there's a bike rack outside the shop or maybe ask why there isn't one. Because mm -hmm. a lot of store owners only hear people complaining about parking and they tend to think that a larger percent of their customers arrive by car. So they're usually really opposed to anything that would cut back on the number of cars. And they don't realize that a lot of their customers are getting there by other means. Yes. And I know recently in Bloomington, where I live, they're going through a whole master plan for the city right now. And there's time for public input at all of these different phases. And one thing that comes up is parking in the downtown area. And what do we want that to look like in 10 years? And as you're saying businesses are often very organized in terms of getting their interests put forward. And it's great to get another side and perspective to that, to have it be more well-rounded. Yeah. Do you have other suggestions? What are the best ways for listeners to get involved to affect policy change in their communities to support active transportation? Well, if you have time and the ability to volunteer for local neighborhood groups or committees around your area, they're usually looking to hear uh, what people have to say and looking for more input from 
and I would say a broader range of people. Mm -hmm. And so if you can join your local neighborhood groups, like I'm on a, a taxing district called the Special Services Area Transportation Committee. So they have a certain budget that they allocate to transportation projects. So I can share my perspective as a biking family and what we would hope to have. So there are lots of ways to get involved. And, and it's hard when you have kids to find time to do that. But if you can, that can help a lot. Absolutely. And have you noticed since you've been working for CMAP that those more varied interests are gaining more traction and getting more visibility in those larger organizations? Because when I think of, did you say it's seven counties in Chicago, around Chicago? Yes. I mean, that's a huge area. And I'm assuming a lot of that is more suburban sprawl where a lot of people are very reliant on cars, as opposed to if you live right in the city center where you're really connected. And I guess I'm just wondering if you've noticed a shift recently toward really thinking about it, not just from an automobile perspective, but from all users' perspective. Yeah, we definitely have. Um, we do, I think it's an annual survey of municipalities, and we have 284 municipalities that we work with. And over 200 of them responded. I think it was like 220. And after asset management, a non-motorized transportation was the second most requested area of interest from the municipalities around the region. So there's definitely an interest and it's still much more recreational when you get out into the suburbs. So mm -hmm. forest preserve, bike trails, then on street bike lanes going to the grocery store. But we are starting to see that in the suburbs. We've got two suburbs that have the protected green lane on street bike facilities. And that's really great. And I think that type of infrastructure is what's really going to shift people's habits. So I would say that the shift I've seen in the city of Chicago is going from just your white painted lane up against parked cars to more substantial infrastructure that sometimes has curbs or parking protected. And those are the kind of lanes where you just you'd feel comfortable riding with a small child and be less worried about what might happen to them. So it's that type of infrastructure is what is going to convert a lot more people. Yes, because safety is usually people's number one concern, being concerned that it's not safe because they don't see those kind of facilities necessarily, or there haven't been in the past those kind of facilities. My understanding is Chicago has made huge progress in the last few years in terms of really upping their game and getting those kind of protected lanes on the ground. Yeah, definitely. We, you know, I, as I mentioned, I think it was really kicked into high gear under Gabe Klein. But since he has left and Rebecca Scheinfeld has taken over, they've done a great job of continuing that legacy. And we, we have a big transportation conference here this year. It's actually next week. So it's called NACTO, and that's the National Association of City Transportation Officials. And they're going to do a lot of walking tours of the city. And I think many of the projects were finished quickly this year to show them off. Yes, my husband will actually be there next week. So he's a transportation engineer. 
Oh, neat. Yeah. And a lot of what you've been describing with these different policies and making communities more livable reminds me of the work of strong towns. And Charles Marone came to Bloomington recently and gave a talk and just really shifting the way you're thinking about the whole city and and what really does bring in money and what really does support making it a place people want to live is fascinating to learn more about and to not just think of things and continuing the status quo, but how can we really make these big leaps forward? Yeah, I've been following the work of Strong Towns for a while now and really love the perspective that they bring to the table. If you saw him recently, you probably saw his analyses of our tax dollars that we put towards infrastructure and how the neighborhoods that we typically think of as the struggling areas that are pulling away from our communities are really subsidizing so much of the broader area in terms of they're contributing more and our tax dollars used to support their water infrastructure, like the sewers and the roads, is so much cheaper than our dispersed development further out from the core. Absolutely. I'd love more mayors to get that in front of them so they could see the value in some of their older areas and great buildings. Yes. And I'll be sure to link to all of the names and books and resources that we've mentioned in the show notes if people are interested in digging into that a little bit deeper. Awesome. Well, I like to end the show by asking these three questions. What have you found to be the biggest benefits of active or car-free transportation, the biggest challenges, and then advice you would give listeners who are interested in incorporating more of that? So let's start with the challenges. Okay. I was thinking about this and it made me go back a few years and I actually found that being car-free as a dog owner was more cumbersome than being car-free with a child. Mm, interesting. Because when you're trying to get around with a dog, you can't put the dog on the bus or on a commuter train unless it's a service animal. Right. And a lot of car rentals are pretty strict about them. When it comes to our current life with our daughter, I would say the biggest challenge is that our longer distance trips to places that aren't accessible by transit requires a little bit more planning ahead. Mm-hmm. But that's just all sort of part of the adventure. And I kind of feel like there's, you know, there's the slow food movement where you're trying to connect with your food and know your local farms and prepare your own meals. And I approach it from the perspective of slow transportation where we're not quite in a hurry and, and getting there is part of the fun. Yes. I have also found that being car free has made us slow down, but in a way that has enhanced our life. And not to say there aren't frustrations or there aren't times where it would be nice to just get in a car and go somewhere. But overall, I think it's far and away a net positive. Yeah, definitely. How have you found the winter in Chicago? Do you find that you transition more to using transit or have you gotten very skilled at biking through the winter? Yeah, I started out with a, let's say I used a temperature cutoff. So if it was less than 17 degrees, I wouldn't bike. But then I started biking when it was a little bit colder and it kind of felt like the same. I mean, I was either standing out... (laughs) 
waiting for a bus or I was generating my own heat by biking. Mm-hmm. And I just got better gear. I got a Patagonia, I think it's like a level two zip up hoodie that has saved me many years. I've replaced it once, but it kind of zips tight around my head and my neck and over my face. And so I don't bike when it's rainy and cold, but I will bike if it's snowing or negative 10. It's, we've gotten used to it. My husband is a little bit crazier than I am and he will (laughs) bike no matter what. Like he biked when we had the negative 30 wind chill. Wow. And I was like, no way I'm taking the train. (laughs) That is some serious commitment to biking. (laughs) Yeah. I think that it helps to have a partner who's committed to biking to do this as a family. I totally agree. Because there are many times where I feel like if it were just me, it would be much easier to make the decision not to go. But because I know that my husband's going to or that he already biked to work or whatever it is, it's like, okay, I can do this. It's just a mindset shift. Yeah. There was one time where I I decided to take the train and it was so packed full of people that I couldn't get on seven trains that went by. And I I ended up going back above ground and catching a bus. But the whole time I was like, I should have ridden my bike. <laughs> yes. That is something that Elspeth said a couple episodes ago that she she knows that she will regret it if she doesn't bike. Yes. Because every time she tries not biking, it ends up being worse than if she had just gone, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is something good to remember. Let's move into the positives and what you found to be the biggest benefits of being car-free. Well, for me, the biggest benefit that we sort of touched on a minute ago is the the quality time that we spend together as a family. So getting places can take longer, but we're completely engaged with our daughter and she's experiencing the world around her. So maybe we'll be taking a train out to the suburbs and we can look out the windows with her and... I like the idea that we're not communicating through a rear view mirror. Mm-hmm. And obviously the the next biggest benefit is the money that we save without car payments and car insurance and parking tickets, gas. We can put that towards other parts of our budget, which for us allows us to live in a more walkable neighborhood. And the crazy thing is that we found that most of our trips are faster by bike. Mm. And we figure this out when we are meeting friends or family who are driving to and from the same location. And we get there at the same time and we don't have to get parking. (laughs) Right. Yes. I found the same thing here, too, that nothing we go to is very far. And so, sure, they might get there a little bit faster, but we're talking two to three minutes. (laughs) So. It's much faster than most people realize. Yeah, I think that was one of the biggest things that I I didn't realize until I was regularly biking that it's so efficient and you can just get around a city. Trips under three miles are usually going to be faster when you're on a bike, Mm -hmm. especially if you go at rush hour. And I know my husband likes to count the cars that he passes. Mm, Yes. I mean, (laughs) he'll get up into the hundreds. Yes. Of going down one big street, yeah. Yeah, it's a great feeling to be in the bike lane going past stopped cars. (laughs) Yes. Do you have any other benefits or are those the the big two? 
Those are the main ones. I mean, obviously, there is an element of exercise, but I ride so slowly that I don't really feel like I get a big workout unless I actually am pedaling the back feats and pushing a little extra weight around. Yes, I'm a very leisurely cyclist, so I'm usually not <laughs> trying to exert myself as I'm getting around town. Yep. Well, let's end by talking about what piece of advice do you have for listeners who are interested in either incorporating more active transportation or becoming car-free? I would guess that if people are listening to your podcast, they're probably not starting from square one. But if they were, I would say you should try starting out by taking your bike without kids just to get used to the idea of riding around. And sort of what we've talked about before it really helps if you can find local organizations that promote biking or even online communities. So in Chicago, we have the Active Transportation Alliance. We've got Slow Roll Chicago and a group called the Chicago Family Biking Community. And that's primarily on Facebook. But that has really exploded with like almost over a thousand members and it's a great place where you can reach out and ask questions about comfortable biking routes or streets. And I won't be the first person to point out that sometimes the streets that Google tells you to take that have bike lanes are not the routes that I'd recommend. Mm -hmm. My husband and I host a monthly neighborhood ride for families and people biking with small kids. And we definitely try to avoid riding on the main streets that have bike lanes because riding on a busy road next to parked cars, no, no thanks. It's that paint doesn't make you safe. And we know that finding sort of the low traffic volume streets, your one way streets, tree lined streets, those are what will make your trip more enjoyable and less stressful. And uh, I personally prefer to ride upright and ride slowly with lights and a bell. Mm -hmm. Yes. My husband has a totally different riding style. He likes to get his Strava achievements and has to slow down when he's riding with me and our daughter. But for me, when you go faster, there's so much more that can happen and go wrong. And I recommend that people assume that most drivers aren't looking out for you. And they probably aren't even aware that their vehicle is equipped with turn signals and side mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> so just taking an approach of riding defensively. And as you start to track more miles, you get better at spotting those distracted drivers and the dangerous driver behavior. So you learn that you should go to the left of a right-turning vehicle. And, mm -hmm. and if you are going through an intersection cars might try to turn left and take gaps in traffic without looking for bikes. And so you, you learn to go cautiously through intersections. But hopefully as people bike, they'll, they'll just learn how much fun it is. Even, even biking in the rain, warm rain though. Like I said, I don't bike in cold rain. <laughs> yeah, that's fairly miserable. And then from the planning perspective, if people are wanting to get involved to change policies. Do you have any recommendations for how they can know what's coming up in their city? I think that so many times it's 
until the event has passed, that's when you hear about it in the news, as opposed to when it's public comment time. Do you have any suggestions for people to be in the know about when they can be offering input to support active transportation? Yeah, I mean, if you do have a local group that is promoting active transportation, they would be the ones who would really know what is happening in City Hall. I would say most communities, most cities don't make it easy to know what's going on. And usually the information is kind of buried on their website. But sometimes they'll have a calendar of events coming up or maybe there's there might be a planning or zoning commission. You could attend some of those meetings. But if there is a group, and, and I hope there are, I feel like we hear about more and more popping up across the nation. So they would probably be the first resource. And in Chicago, we also have the mayor's advisory group on walking and biking. I don't know that I have the name exactly correct, but they hold regular meetings. So just sort of trying to find out what groups are active and attending meetings is the the first place to start. Right. And we even have, Bloomington's not very big, and we have a bicycle commission here, and they're actually starting a parking commission here as well. So if you have time to dedicate to that, that's a great way to get involved, as you're saying. Yeah. And definitely, even if you are car-free and don't have a car, be involved in the discussion of parking because it does affect you. Yes, absolutely. Well, Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your expertise with us. Thank you for having me. And can you let listeners know how they can be in contact with you if they want to follow you or get more information? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Lindsay Banks, and that's probably the best way to reach me. I'm also on Facebook. It's part of the Chicago Family Biking Group. Perfect. And I will link to both of those in the show notes along with all the other resources that we mentioned. Thanks to everyone for listening to the show. You can find the show notes at familypedals.com, and you can find me on Instagram at familypedals. If you'd like to support the show, there are two easy ways to do that. You can leave a rating and review on iTunes, or you can share the show with someone else you think would enjoy it. Next time, Dave Cohen will be joining me on the show. He is the founder and director of V-Bike, a nonprofit organization that is working to make active transportation more inclusive specifically by promoting the use of cargo and electric assist bikes in Vermont. I hope you'll join me then.